A man once wrote to his wife following the death of his beloved daughter, My dearest Emma, I pray God Fanny's note may have prepared you. She went to her final sleep most tranquilly, most sweetly at 12 o'clock today. Our poor dear child has had a very short life, but I trust happy. And God only knows what miseries might have been in store for her. She expired without a sigh. How desolate it makes one to think of her frank, cordial manners. I cannot remember ever seeing the dear child naughty. God bless her. We must be more and more to each other, my dear wife. Do what you can to bear up and think how invariably kind and tender you have been to her. I am in bed, not very well with my stomach. When I shall return, I cannot say, my own poor dear, dear wife. And that was signed C. Darwin, or Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. Like many people of that era, Charles had somewhat of a cultural faith in Christianity, but it has been said that this event, the passing away of his 10-year-old daughter Annie, was the turning point in Darwin's life and a major influence which led him to give up on Christianity and eventually publish his Origin of Species, the seminal document of evolutionary biology. This grieving heart of Darwin pondered how a loving God could be consistent with all this sin and the brokenness and the grief in the world. And he is not alone in the struggle, is he? Richard Dawkins, a son of Darwin in the faith, so to speak, claims that it was the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Centers in New York City that made him a militant atheist. Many people question the goodness or the existence of God when they suffer through tragedies like this. Some people ask if God is good, why is there so much pain? Or they ask if he is so powerful, why doesn't he use his power to stop the bad things going on? If he can work miracles, why is my child sick with cancer? Why didn't he stop my parents divorcing when I was a kid? Why didn't he stop my Christian parents divorcing when I was a kid? How can a so-called loving and good and almighty God exist if the world is in the state that it is in? And maybe today there are some of you who are struggling with these very same questions. Many people like Darwin go on to reject the notion of God's existence in part because they can't fully understand why there is so much pain and suffering in this life. Darwin's theory of origins makes it an easy cop-out for those who don't want to believe in God, even though there is spurious evidence at best behind the theory of evolution. And I'm still confused why many of us as Christians try and think that it is consistent with the Bible, especially when the whole point of evolution was to explain a world without God. And Richard Dawkins himself understands that. So today we're going to look at Genesis 50 
And we're going to see at how he responds to his brothers, who many years before planned to kill him. Joseph's brothers became jealous of Joseph and put him in an empty pit. But in lieu of killing him, they sold him into Egypt. Joseph endured immense suffering at the hands of his brothers and he endured unjust imprisonment at the hands of the Egyptians as well. Yet Joseph did not, in the end, question the goodness of God, nor even God's existence. And it is in this passage that we learn why Joseph couldn't do that. Rather, he responded quite submissively to God and lovingly to those who had hurt him. And so we're just going to read that passage, part of it again. If you want to turn to Genesis 50, we'll read from verses 15 to 21. We'll just pick it up at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Now we don't know he actually did. They may have been making that up or it may be of what the father said. They're just repeating what he was meant to have said. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today so do not fear i will provide for you and your little ones thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them so joseph knew god's place we see that in verse 19 have a look but joseph said to them do not fear for am i in the place of god Why does Joseph ask, am I in the place of God? Well, the Hebrew text says, am I instead of God? That's the literal. Joseph is asking his brothers, have I replaced God? Do I sit in the judgment seat of God? Have I been handed the right to be the judge, the jury and the executioner simply because you wanted to kill me all those years ago? And now that dad, so Jacob, is dead, Joseph would say, do you think I will harm you? As prime minister in Egypt, Joseph did have the right to be the judge, the jury and the executioner and could have very well lifted off his brother's heads like he did to the baker, uh, like uh, the pharaoh did to the baker in prison. But Joseph has the full support of pharaoh. So he could have very well have done that. But even as Prime Minister, with all the chariots, all the chariots of Egypt at his beck and call, Joseph knew that there was a king involved in this situation, whom even Pharaoh and his minions must bow down to. And this king revealed himself to Joseph's father, Jacob, and to his grandfather Isaac, and to his great-grandfather Abraham. God Almighty was this king's name. 
And Joseph trusted this king, this God who had made a covenant with Abraham and swore by himself that he would keep the promises he made to Abraham. So if you remember from Genesis 15, Abraham had this weird dream and it was God making a covenant. And normally when we talk about covenant in that context, it's called cutting a covenant. It's called cutting a covenant because you have to cut animals up and then walk through the pieces. Um, Whoever was making the agreement, you'd hold hands or uh, just walk through together, um, signifying that if I don't keep my side of the covenant, that's what's going to happen to you, looking at the cut up pieces of the animal on the floor. So it's a graphic way of saying you need to keep your end of the bargain. But in this case, in Genesis 15, there was only a smoking fire pot and a torch walking through the pieces when Abraham was asleep. And that signified God making a covenant with Abraham and that Abraham wasn't, he was asleep, he wasn't there to actually uphold his side of the bargain. So this promise was going to be dependent on God, not on Abraham. And hopefully that filtered down to Joseph. And out of submission to God Almighty, Joseph refused to take God's place in seeking vengeance against his brothers. This is why Joseph could say in verse 19, Do not fear. Joseph refused to take revenge because he knew that the sin committed against him was against God Almighty in the first instance. King David in Psalm 51 understood the reality of this, that even though he committed adultery and murder, which clearly affects someone else, you're killing someone else, you're uh, having an affair with someone else, he could say to God in repentant prayer, against you, against you and you only have I sinned. This is because God is the only non-sinful member or an innocent in the party in all of the world's problems because it is his laws that are being broken by us in the first place. And the difficult thing for us to grasp as sinners is that even when we are unjustly treated, when we are untreated, uh, unjustly treated by others, we deserve the full wrath of God for our own sin. Because the Bible tells us that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This means that the punishment we deserve for breaking God's laws is actually far greater than all of the sin that can be committed against us in this life. But I'm not suggesting, therefore, that when bad things happen, it happens directly as a result of our sin or something we've done. I'm just saying that our sin deserves the full wrath of God. And the worst that sinful mankind can do to us doesn't come near to what we deserve or what awaits us if we dismiss God's rightful place in our life. Joseph knew that he had sinned against his God, his King, God Almighty, but he had already experienced the mercy of this King while he was in prison. So knowing this mercy, knowing that God was sinned against in the first instance and knowing that God Almighty was certainly big enough to deal with the sins of his brothers... He refused to take God's place and he forgave them, his undeserving brothers, in the same manner that God undeservedly had mercy on him. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament in Romans 12.9, 12, 12, Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is why in verse 19, Joseph could assure his brothers that they do not need to fear. But is this true with us? How do we respond to an episode of personal hurt? How do we behave when our rights don't seem to be recognised by those around us? When we deserve better, when we deserve more? Do people fear us when they sin against us? Do they fear our reaction? Are we prone to violence? Do we seek to sit in God's place and be the judge, the jury and the executioner when they do us wrong? I have to admit I'm, I'm not convinced that either Charles Darwin or Richard Dawkins rejected God Almighty in favour of evolutionary biology because of all the pain and suffering that is in the world. Yes, it may be a factor or more probably a convenient excuse. But in the final analysis, God is rejected because they wanted to sit in God Almighty's place and to call the shots for their own lives. Pain and suffering are factors, but the real reason is idolatry, where we replace the true king with another one. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who wanted to be like God and sought to take his place. And if we can get rid of Adam and Eve through evolutionary biology, then maybe too we can get rid of the sin that we inherited because of them. And also finally get rid of the God who in their minds don't deserve to be king. Joseph refused this kind of thinking and so should we. God is king and has the right to rule our lives, to shorten them, to extend them, to trouble them or to make them peaceful. God has that right. Our right is to acknowledge this king and submit to him. Joseph also knew God's providence. We see that in verse 20. Have a look. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant to kill me and get rid of me, but God used your wicked actions in rejecting me and putting me in a pit in the ground and selling me off to Egypt. God used your wicked actions for good. You see what Joseph is saying? The very same actions which were sinful and intended for harm were also used by God for good and intended for good. This is providence. God's ability based on the fact that God is God and he is all-knowing and all-powerful and governs all things, that even the actions of sinful man he can use for good. And we see the outcome of providence in Joseph's suffering. Because if Joseph didn't go to Egypt and be used by God there, even his brothers wouldn't be alive today. They would have died of famine. Joseph saw God's hand in the malice, the hatred and the jealousy of his brother's cruel actions. This providence is a bit like weaving. God Almighty, knowing the future knows the good and bad actions of his creatures ahead of time and despite this, he, like a grand weaver, weaves his thread of good purpose through all of these actions to achieve his 
purpose in the world. This is how one set of actions by Joseph's brothers were meant for evil, while God meant the very same actions for good. The Christian view of providence is a concept that is opposed to both the world views of chance and fatalism. Now, chance is a view that everything happens, as the name suggests, everything happens by chance or by accident. There is no ultimate rhyme or reason for anything happening. Today, uh, chance takes the form of a humanistic worldview, namely evolutionary biology, as we've talked about, and, well, we're just a bit of pond scum that has accidentally grown an arm, legs, a brain, and somehow survived through millions of years and by billions of impossible chances to come about. It has all happened by accident and there is no governing plan behind it all or anything that happens in this world. On the other hand, we have fatalism, where there is a resignation to certain future events that seem inevitable and it is accompanied by the belief that one is powerless to change or impact the foregone conclusions. That is, if you think you know what those conclusions are going to be. Now, militant Islam tends to hold this type of view, where the creature may do a heinously wicked deed, like blowing some people up, and then resigning to the fact, well, God must have let it, and therefore God wanted me to do it, and it is okay. It's a very handy worldview if you want to justify and excuse sin. God must have wanted it that way. Fatalism diminishes responsibility. Whereas in Christian providence, Joseph's brothers are still held responsible for their own sin. The other difference between fatalism and Christian providence is that God in his goodness and his mercy has chosen to use us, you and me, his creatures and our actions as part of his plan as he governs the world. So in other words, our actions matter. It matters whether we come to church. It matters what we do every day of the week. It matters what we watch on TV. It matters what we look at on the computer. It matters how we raise our children. Everything we do matters in providence. We can't resign to the fact that God will do what God will do regardless of our actions. But as Christians and as Joseph knew all too well, God is a God who uses the actions of his sinful creatures and weaves them into an outcome for his glory. And God's plan is like a beautifully weaved rug. If you were to pick up a Persian rug, on the one side you'd see a delicately woven picture. But if you were to turn the rug around to the back, what would you see? You'd see a bunch of colourful threads that really don't look like they mean anything. You wouldn't see a clear design from that. While Joseph didn't know what what was being weaved, he only saw the back of the rug. He knew that by God's providential weaving, the rug he was a part of had a beautiful picture of redemption on the front. And this is the glory of providence. Hindsight is definitely a wonderful thing. I'm sure we've all experienced that and can testify to that. And we won't always know why God has let people hurt us or why God lets tragedy strike. But it is comforting and restraining for us to know that God is working through it all. 
Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is for those who love God and that even the bad things that happen to us, whether by the cruel hands of mankind or the seeming accidents that come along our way and the illnesses, that these things will be weaved into God's purposes for our good. John Calvin um, sums it up this way. So whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. God's providence, if we have understood it, is a great comfort to us. There's a story about um, John Newton when he was visiting a, um, one of his parishioners who um, it was a lady who lost her house in a house fire and apparently it was all burnt to the ground and she was standing, standing around quite sad as you would be if you lost your house and he walked up, walked up to her and said um, words the effect of cheer up woman, you have a house in heaven how would you feel if someone came up and said that to you it's absolutely true um, she didn't sort of appreciate it instantly but she came to, came to understand how true it was I don't suggest that we throw Romans 8, 28 at people when they go through terrible troubles in their life. We need to walk with them through the tragedies, love them, and one day, if they can't see it now, they will see God's hand in it. The Heidelberg Catechism, if any of you are familiar with it, is an educational tool for kids and families that teaches about the Bible. And one of the uh, uh, questions in it, it's a question-answer sort of, style of teaching there's a question and then you answer it and hopefully you remember it so you can learn about God but in question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism it talks about providence and I think it's quite apt to um, read it to you And and the question is what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things so what advantage is it to us answer that we may be patient in adversity so when bad things happen when things go wrong that we may be thankful in prosperity so when things seem to be going well it'll teach us to be thankful and that in all things which may hereafter befall us so everything else that's going to come we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will They cannot so much as move. And I know Joseph lived about 3,000 years before this catechism was written. But you can almost see this question on his lips in verse 20, in Genesis 50, as he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And finally... Joseph knew God's provision. Have a look in verse 21. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers were scared. Dad was dead. And now the most powerful person that they knew just happened to be the brother they tried to kill all those years ago. 
What would Joseph do? This is the second time that Joseph has calmed their fears. Not only was he willing to forgive, Joseph was also willing to provide for the practical needs of his entire family as they lived in Egypt and he, they ate the food that he himself had stored up, which saved an entire nation from starvation, but also saved many nations around Egypt at the time. Joseph had known God's provision in Egypt, first as an employee in Potiphar's house, and then as a prisoner under Pharaoh, and then eventually by being raised to the top echelons of the Egyptian government, or dictatorship, technically. God had not forgotten Joseph but he had provided for him. Now Joseph would provide for his family as the Good Samaritan provided for his enemy. Now Joseph was moved to respond in a manner consistent with faith in a king who works through his creatures. And rather than punish his brothers, Joseph chose to provide for them as God Almighty had already provided for him. Knowing God's place and providence in times of suffering and pain will eventually result in a practical, tempered and insightful response to the evil that is going on around us. And even more specifically, it brings a loving response to the persons who have wounded us and it hurt us. The commentator Derek Kidner puts it well when he says, Joseph repays evil not only with forgiveness but also with practical affection. This is Joseph putting his money where his mouth is. And he provides for his family and speaks kindly to his brothers. This is grace. This is his brothers not getting what they deserve from Joseph who got something that he didn't deserve from God, which was mercy. The brothers deserve to be flogged for what they did, but no, They were given grace, kindness and mercy through Joseph. And behind all this, Joseph himself knew that he didn't deserve the blessings that he received, nor did he deserve to seek revenge. Joseph saved the entire country of Egypt from starvation and death. And not only the Egyptians, but his own family as well. There would be no Israel today if Joseph hadn't have been in Egypt, if he hadn't have been through what he did, when he did. Think about it, what would have happened if the sons of Israel died of starvation? The brothers would be dead. And namely, Judah would be dead and Judah's sons. If Judah had have died, then King David wouldn't have existed. And if David had never existed, then the Messiah to come from him, Jesus Christ, would theoretically at least not have existed. And if Joseph had have only known the full extent to the role to what he played in God's wonderful story of redemption, that God was weaving through the lives and the actions of sinful men as they rebelled against him from Eden onwards. And this is why it is important to understand God's place as he works his providence and allowing it to transform the way we see this sinful world and our place in us, as sinners like you and me. And if it wasn't for Joseph, humanly speaking, we wouldn't have Jesus. Sometimes the question is asked, why do bad things happen to good people? 
But this really is a misleading question. The prophet Isaiah tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The basic foundation of that question is assuming that everyone is good. Well, Isaiah is saying it's something else. So the question really is, why do bad things happen to bad people? Well, the answer is a bit more obvious now, isn't it? Isaiah is telling us that we all have turned to our own way and rejected the true and the living God. But this is not the end of the story. Isaiah goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah 53 verse 6. So the real and pertinent question for us today then is not, why do bad things happen to good people? But why did bad things happen to Jesus Christ? The only truly good person that ever existed. He was God in the flesh. Truly bad things did happen to Jesus. He was rejected by his brothers. He was falsely charged with lying, blasphemy, although he was telling the truth. And then he was flogged and beaten and nailed to a cross and suffered crucifixion and death. But do you realize what makes this sin against him even more grievous? Well, Jesus Christ had lived a perfect life. There was no sin on his account. He didn't deserve to die. To do bad things to a purely innocent and righteous person is far worse than a sinner doing sinful things against another sinner. To do bad things to a purely innocent and righteous person is far worse than a sinner doing things against another sinner. So nothing we will ever have to go through will ever compare to the injustice that was carried out on Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus submitted to the person of God the Father, who together with the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, they had prearranged for all these bad things to happen. To happen to Jesus. To punish him for the sinful things that we have done. It is our iniquity and rebellion that was laid on him. As Isaiah tells us, so that we can go free. Being born sinners, God has provided for us through the actions of wicked mankind. The righteousness by which we can be declared just before a holy God. And this is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he earned for us through his life and death and resurrection from the dead. Jesus was innocent and suffered in our place and he did it willingly. If we don't know God's place, we cannot know God's providence and ultimately we will then fail to see what he has provided for us through this life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even today, Joseph is calling us to repent and to believe in the good news the good news that he had a big role in preserving for us by keeping his brothers alive. It was no accident that Joseph was thrown into the pit and sold into Egypt. It was no accident that Jesus was sold into the hands of the Romans by his Jewish brothers and nailed to the cross. 
And for those of us who believe and will believe, we are being weaved into the rug of redemption, even if all we can see now are the tangled cords at the back. And I want to finish by reading again uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, because it sums it up quite nicely and quite beautifully. And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your answer to it now? Well, I hope it goes along these lines. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, that's his place. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That's the provision. And has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. That's his providence. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I hope that's similar to what your answer would have been.